Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. International News Review. Welcome back to Saturday mornings here on Money FM 89.3933 on your Saturday morning. Dozens of nations have signed up to deals to phase out coal at end of fossil fuel financing at the U.S. climate talks in Scotland this week. Pressure is growing, however, to stop the expansion of polluting energy that is contributing to global warming. People on both sides of the fence, some have said this is a good work this week. Others have said it's mere greenwashing. Let's get to the bottom of it with uh, our guests this morning. Uh, Steve Oaken joining us, Senior Advisor at McCarty and Associates, and also Professor Benjamin Horton, Director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore. Good morning, gents. Uh, ben, let's go to you first. What's your top line on COP26 in, in uh, Edinburgh? Is it, is it doing enough to help the planet? I don't think there's a simple answer for that, really. I think that it's a mix. I think it's absolutely fantastic that uh, you can see the biggest world leaders convening together to have a special conference just on climate change. It's not a G20 summit. Mm, mm. It's just on climate change, trying to find the answers and the solutions for that. But then on the flip side, I think any world leader can stand up there and say that they're going to be carbon neutral by 2050 or 2060, or in the Indian case, 2070. It's just words. And so for myself, what I'm far more interested in Because the Paris Agreement, which perhaps we can talk about in a little bit, has two parts of it regarding regarding greenhouse gas emissions. One is the carbon neutrality sometime in the middle part of the 21st century. But then the other part is peaking emissions by 2030. That's a far shorter term target. And I haven't seen any country lay out plans to do that. I mean, even the Biden administration says that they're going to cut their emissions by the end of this decade by somewhere in the order of 50%. Quite an amazing pledge from a US president. But how is that going to be? How's it going to happen? And that's the sort of thing, because then you can track it. Because that's, you know, you always want ownership or responsibility. So if Let's say Singapore. Singapore was going to wean itself off natural gas, which is 95% of the energy here. What if it said that it was going to go down to 70% by 2030? And then you were able to track it. What does it do in two years? What does it do in four years? What does it do in five years? In the lifetime that these people are going to be in office, when they can be held accountable. Hmm. Well, Professor Horton, while you've mentioned Singapore, let's start with Singapore and then broaden it out internationally. Just looking at key things with Singapore, they've said they'll phase out unabated coal. That's a new one for me by 2050, which means that refers to the burning of coal without carbon capture and storage. They've also announced their membership of the Powering Past Coal Alliance, the PPCA at the summit, and to continue to use their four switches to transform energy supply, focusing on natural gas, solar, regional power grids and low carbon alternatives. So let's focus on Singapore first. Are you happy with Singapore's commitment? Did it go far enough? Could it have gone further? Where do you stand on Singapore first? Well, um, the coal aspect is, is just words because coal only contributes less than 3% to the power grid um, here in Singapore because we use natural gas. I mean, um, so it's a a nice soundbite that Singapore becomes the first Asian nation to sign up to these um, coal agreements. Um, It maybe puts 
some weight behind their green plan um, because it shows that they're, they're they're standing on 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 the international frame but i mean so singapore has some degree of success on on energy it moved away from being nearly exclusively coal then oil then onto the cleanest cleanest form of fossil fuels but singapore has a bit of a problem because you know um i mean we live here in singapore and we know that it imports everything so it imports food energy water and because it doesn't have much raw material apart from its great workforce that it has but one of the raw you could put in you could put in speech marks one of its um, raw materials could be the refining of petroleum um, because it has the biggest petrochemical refinery in the southern hemisphere mm. or around the equator um, so this you could consider it is its raw material and any country that has a raw material is very reluctant to give something up. And this is a whole problem with climate change is that, you know, India is unwilling to wean itself off coal because that's its raw material. Yep. Russia is unwilling to wean itself off gas because that's its raw material. And Singapore has that same problem. It's invested billions of dollars in creating this petrochemical refinery, which brings in billions of dollars to the economy. Yeah. So it's going to be very hard for it to remove. I mean, saying what uh, Singapore's energy use is doesn't really matter because Singapore only contributes 0.1 of a percent to mm. global carbon emissions. But that refinery has a massive impact upon the world. Yeah. You know, we can think about, you know, like Shell as a, the conglomerate. When we move away from countries, Shell is responsible for huge amounts of the greenhouse gas emissions. So I think that's something that I've always thought about to do with Singapore. It has a tricky situation. But Singapore can take the lead on so many other aspects. So if it is leading on the phasing out of coal, what is it telling its other Southeast Asian neighbours who still heavily rely on coal to do about it? How is it mm. helping them out? Mm. I mean, you know, a Singapore philosophy, and I hear this a lot in academia, is that, right, okay, when we submit our big grants to the government, we've said, well, we're going to develop the technologies here in Singapore and then sell them to the rest of the world to make money. And on climate change, that's not right. If we develop these technologies, you give them freely available to other countries because it saves the planet. Mm. And Singapore it has an existential threat. Again, it's one of these countries that, yes, is reliant on fossil fuels, but it's very, very susceptible to the impacts of fossil fuels. Uh, hang on right there, Ben. I want to bring in Steve Oaken. Uh, Steve, when we look at the, uh, the economic and business costs of what we're seeing occur in Scotland at COP26, uh, where, where is the business community uh, going to come down on this? Of course, everybody wants to say they're on board and, and look good for the cameras and, and the newspapers and everything. But uh, from your perspective, as you've been watching this unfold this week, what's it look like? Well, you know, it, it, in thinking about what Neil has said in the past about Jeff Bezos, you know, at, at COP26, he said that his his mission into space and being able to see the planet uh, from from up in uh, you know up in the atmosphere has made him much more of an environmentalist, and he's pledging you know two billion dollars uh, towards combating climate change. So, so Neil, something good did come out of all mm. these billionaires going up into, into outer space. But more critically, what Amazon has, has done is they've said they're going to go carbon neutral uh, by 2040. Um, and so if you have businesses getting to not not 2050, but even go, getting to 2040, and, and that is going to be a huge incentive for 
people to provide renewable energy uh, to Amazon. And so hopefully you're going to see businesses coming in, working with government. So I'm seeing some of the positives from the finance side, which said we're going to be holding our uh, investee companies to, to their carbon pledges. We're going to take more significant carbon pledges. The problem is how you get there in, in that interim, and it's very hard to yeah. get there without government intervention and without the government putting a price on carbon and without having a carbon trading scheme uh, that, that, that meets a sufficient transitional period to ensure that, that those carbon credits are actually real and not being, being double, triple counted and the like. So half, glass half full more than glass half empty for me. Yeah, and on that point, uh, Professor Horson, just a, a rough straw poll, the comments we're getting now on Facebook Live are very much, it's too late, COP26 was a waste of time, it, it's quite half empty. And I'm looking at some of the statistics that have come out this week. The one that stood out to me, um, you know, Steve mentioned there, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, scientists revealed that carbon dioxide emissions, nothing you don't already know, carbon dioxide emissions of the richest 1% of humanity, 1%, are on track to be 30 times greater than what is compatible to keeping us below that 1.5 degree uh, temperature rise. 1% of humanity. And in the COP26 this week, there's been stories of the British Prime Minister taking private jets to fly to London. You know, President Biden turned up with a cavalcade of cars that seemed to stretch across the whole of Glasgow as if no, lesson, no PR lessons have been learned here. My question is, Professor Horton, are we really going to see anything enough, substantial enough to make the changes that are required here when 1% of humanity are contributing so much? Well... I think what is missed at COP26 is the urgency from the scientific community. So, you know, if you the opening ceremony uh, in Glasgow was fantastic. I mean, it had, you know, Biden, it had Prince Charles, it had David Attenborough. But where was the scientist? Mm. I mean, you know, we may not be rock stars, <laughs> you know, have huge social media profiles, but without scientists, we, you cannot provide the answer. I mean, we could go to the pandemic, okay? So, and I heard you talking about booster shots. Well, who invented those booster shots? Was it a social media person? Was it a politician? Was it Cristiano Ronaldo? <laughs> no. It was a scientist and a team of scientists. Mm. And maybe the problem with the pandemic is then... Cristiano Ronaldo, social media stars, the politicians, in not making sure that the science information is communicated crystal clear, that vaccines save your life, COVID kills you. Take yeah. the vaccine. You know, I heard you think about all the negative side effects of a booster. Well, one thing they don't say, well, it put me in hospital and killed me. <laughs> but I think we could get quite a few people who could have family members where COVID put them in hospital and killed you. And it's exactly the same with climate change, is that the scientists needed to be up there and say, you know, comments like, oh, it's going to be the end of the world. Anyone can say that, but the actual true reality of what would happen to a nation, to a region, to the world is horrific if we don't stop climate change. The Earth is going to be absolutely fine. The Earth has gone through periods where there have been peak CO2, where temperatures have been much warmer than today, colder than today. There have been mass extinctions. This blue planet will continue to exist. 
for billions of years. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is the extinction of civilization. And I don't think anyone really gets that, the extinction of civilization, where you two guys don't have a radio show. Maybe you'll do an emergency SOS radio show, <laughs> telling yeah. people where they can get drinking water mm. or where there are food supplies or how many people have died in a catastrophic third world war because of immigration problems. That's what that's what climate change is about because we as scientists know that and we know this it's a fact if we get above 1.5 degrees c centigrade and we stay above it catastrophic effect ben we have yeah, to, um, I, as, yeah, a, ahead, as a policy person yeah. as, as a policy person it, right you've got two competing policies on on this planet right now you've got the the the, the environment on one hand and you've got you know, zero poverty and getting people out of poverty on the other. And the problem is those two things can conflict, right? If you why, go with, why, with, why can they conflict? They can't. I didn't say if they you have, talk to me, if you no, say something about energy prices, no, then no, you, that's the they, oil industry again. Oh, I didn't say they have to. I said they can, right? And, and, and this is why you need to come to some, some, some solution that takes both into account. Right, so if you go with zero deforestation and you, you don't, compensate the, the the people who can no longer farm and, and, and who or new who, who no longer have access to come out of poverty and you don't compensate them you put all the costs uh, of, of of the climate into the developing countries that is going to result in not addressing the climate problem so you have to but, have but, uh, address but the scientific both community and, came together at the Paris agreement with a solution for that again it was the governments that didn't hold up to it the Paris and, agreement has both reduction in, in in carbon dioxide but it also made a financial pledge because what you're talking about is a very historic question regarding climate change in that, you know, carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for a thousand years yeah, or so. Right. So the climate China, that we're let's, let's yeah, answer. China yeah. doesn't show up. China doesn't show up to COP26. Russia doesn't show up to COP26 at, at the leader level. Australia doesn't have the pledge it needs. India doesn't have the pledge it needs. So there's got to be some solution because we're, we're not getting there. The science is the science and you're never going to change that. But how do we get this conflict addressed between economics and poverty alleviation and science? And, and because it's, of course, in everyone's interest to avoid the, the, the catastrophe that we're headed towards. And that is that is something that still needs to be done. I think COP26 is coming into those discussions. You look at Indonesia, they say we're going to we'll have greater reduction if you get if you pay us for it. And if you don't pay us for it, we're not going to reduce carbon as much. Where's that money coming from? Maybe the financial industry and the investors can come up with it. We'll have to see. Uh, ben, um, you've been on the show many times uh, before talking you know, passionately about sea level rise in, in the micro, how it would impact Singapore, for example, and other island nations. Uh, to Steve's point, is, uh, I know the scientific community is, is, is focused on the science. Is there any – is there any way to really make that understandable to the business community and the political community? We we have seen, uh, as, as Steve alluded to, uh, governments are basically, you know, kind of ignoring a lot of these big commitments. The ones that have to be made, frankly, five, ten years ago, not today. Um, where where do where do the scientists make their inroads? Where do you make your inroads? Uh, because you all have been talking very passionately and clearly about this for a lot of years now. What is going to push the needle? Is it going to be an economic crisis uh, that's going to make people finally sit up and take notice? Well, 
I think there's probably three things that scientists can do. Um, the first one is education. So if people have the knowledge about how climate is changing and that there are solutions readily available, they're more likely to make those decisions. So education is key. Um, you know, we can sit in our ivory tower and think everyone understands climate change and how urgent it is. Right. But there's a vast group of people who don't. There's something like, supposedly, there's something like 70% of people on the planet that don't even know what climate change is. Hmm. So it's about educating. Um, it has some basis in really how, how we should always want to live our lives, which is sustainability. Related to education is communication. How do we communicate science beyond academia? You know, I, you could say that um, the scientific community has failed in its influence of policy. The flip side of that is that climate change is a new science. I mean, it only really came to the fore where there was significant um, um, investment into looking at climate in the 1980s and 90s. So it's a relatively new science. You could say that in 30 or so years, it's made a huge impact that in a birth of a science within 30 years is now holding a meeting where President Biden talks about it. So it could just be the natural course of things. The third thing is that scientists like myself spend every hour of the day trying to improve our understanding of climate, educating young people and giving so many talks. I think this week I've given four or five talks. I've been double booked and they're always now I talk to, and this is why I came on to on this radio show is to talk to different audiences. I'm not so interested in talking to scientists. Mm -hmm. Someone else can do that. Indeed, better scientists than me, younger, sharper, brighter minds. They're the ones I want to go and talk. So I talked to the Norway Science um, this week. Um, you know, I talked with ACOM earlier this week. So talking to the real estate and talking to people who are working in the Arctic to try and influence those business leaders that they can make a difference. This 1% that contribute the huge amounts of carbon dioxide, they're the people that we need to shift. And we need to try and say to them that, you know, the bottom line isn't your end goal. You know, your lead CEOs, you can be a good steward for your company, but you need to be a steward for planet Earth. We need to put a value on carbon, whether that happens quick enough with a carbon tax. But, you know, and the other thing, the only other thing to say is that the scientific community have been successful because before the Paris Agreement, we were on a projection of around a four degree C world. You know, then the Paris Agreement agreement comes in and we get it down to around 2.5 um, and the COP26 takes it about down to about 2.1. So we have made significant improvements. And why is that? It's mainly driven by the price of renewables. Hmm. The subsidies to the oil companies need to be got rid of completely. But, you know, now solar and wind is cheaper than gas. And it's about half the price of coal. But coal is 37% of the global energy. So when we want to alleviate people out of poverty, we've got the solution. We don't use coal. We've got solar and wind. Wind has gone. I mean, like, if you were trying to do this 
10, 15 years ago, it would be impossible because of the price of wind and solar. Wind has decreased in its price per watts, watts energy by about 70 percent in 10 years. But the That's infrastructure, sort of Ben, the, the infrastructure uh, and, the, and the systems in place for trading, you know, coal and oil and all these things are so huge and so entrenched. You're, you're not wrong about uh, renewables, but it is a massive switch for these companies to just say, hey, now we're going to do solar, right? Don't, don't focus don't companies focus on the people focus on the jobs all right and this is where where Joe Manchin you know in West Virginia has been you know being, being holding up you know a lot of the, the the what the the rest of the Democratic Party wants to do in Washington how many people and how many high paying jobs do you have in in renewables versus how many high paying jobs do you have in in the dirty fuels of you know oil and coal the the job loss will be massive the job transfer will will require billions if not you know trillions of dollars in terms of this so you have to be thinking not just about the impact on the planet which of course is there whether you do anything or not you have to be thinking about the impact on people and you have to be thinking so for example when i i, I you know when i'm talking to a, a company and i was explaining to them you know, look, you've got to start thinking now about, you know, going to 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 car being carbon neutral because pretty soon your investors are going to be requiring that. So let's start thinking about it now and, and getting ahead of that. And they said, well, does that mean we can't grow our company? Because we only invested in this company because we grow it. And if we grow it, mm -hmm. um, we can't stay carbon neutral. We're going to have to be growing our emissions. And I said, well, look, you can do two things in there. You lower your carbon intensity, right, which is at least an improvement. Even though you're going to probably be emitting more, your your carbon intensity is going to go down. And then try and find some some carbon credit scheme. I mean, you got to start thinking that way now. But it comes down to it, it comes down to people, um, not just oh, we'll use wind, we'll use solar. Yes, those are great, and you're going to be much better for the environment. But you're going to be worse in a transitional period for jobs mm. and, and 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 getting people out of poverty. You got to you got to talk about both. And that's the key, isn't it? You're, you're actually both saying similar things here, that we have to connect with the people. The reason that Professor Horton is on this show, you said, because you want to connect with a different audience. And that's the key. How do we get to that point, gentlemen? This is a question for both of you, maybe Professor Horton first. And we just have a couple of minutes we left, just have so a it's going to have to be quick. We know the science. We know the science. Yeah. But we have to connect with the people in Indonesia who make their livelihood from chopping down the palm oil, uh, in, you know, working in the palm oil forest. You know, my mother-in-law, the heartlanders of, of Topayu, they just go and want... They want the cheapest shampoo. They don't care whether it's a single-use plastic. They just want the cheapest $2 shampoo. You know, and you can go on and on. The, the, the miners in Queensland are just providing f food for their family. They're not consciously trying to destroy the planet in Queensland and Western Australia. It's connecting with those guys, isn't it, Ben? Showing them that you can still make a living but do the right thing by the planet. Now, does that fall upon governments to just come in there and say, this is it. We are making these changes. We're going to suffer the short-term losses for the long-term gains. What needs to happen next? Well, I think that I, I have a very similar story. I, I went to <laughs> Indonesia to see one of the palm oil plantations. So where uh, they've taken the natural peatlands, which store huge amounts of carbon, huge amounts of carbon. And once they're gone, Scientifically, we don't actually understand how we can regrow them. Hmm. So they're able to regrow naturally, but it takes thousands upon thousands of years, and we haven't got the time. So you speak to the people who, who basically burnt the peatlands to enable them to plant palm oil, and the person through a translator said to me, you know, 
I didn't do this because I hate the trees. Yep. <laughs> I did this because I want to make money. Exactly. And feed my family. So then it's that, so then it's about thinking about how they are able to make money and the value of that carbon under the ground. So if we were able to say to them, well, you know, an actual fact preserving this peatland and indeed maybe expanding the area that you're conserving will make you money because it goes back into carbon trading but then carbon trading needs to be done properly i mean that's why singapore is quite interested in being a carbon exchange because it's got such secure financial markets that can it be the carbon trading hub for southeast asia and the earth observatory of singapore are involved in this in that can we develop satellite-based methodologies that will look at the biosphere and be able to monitor these peatlands and other rainforest mangroves and understand the carbon flux so if you're investing if you're carbon trading and you're wanting to offset and you're investing in this hectare of rainforest, first of all, is it a rainforest? Mm. Is it the biodiversity and the carbon flux being maintained? And then you get value for money. Yeah. So that's where we get into this sort of, you know. I, ben, so, ben, sorry, to give, I, have, I have to jump in. I, I, I have to give Steve the last, uh, the last word here because oh. we're, we're bumping up against the top of the hour real quick here. Uh, I, I see yeah. the time. Yeah, go, go ahead. Question, because Neil yeah. said, you know, how – Neil said, how do you get somebody to go against their short-term interest for long-term gain? Neil, that's not what government officials do. That is not what politicians do. Politicians don't say, I'm going to take a vote that is going to cost me my time in office because I know it's going to help my grandkids exactly. down the road. That, no governments do that. Forget the United States, Singapore, China. I don't care what government it is. And that's why we need to get to some global solution um, where everybody is going to share in, in the cost and the benefit. COP26 is a great forum to have that discussion. And I think you are seeing some of that naming and shaming. People like hey, President Biden called out President Xi and President Putin for not being there. And yeah. that's, I think, a, a good thing to call them out on, maybe not the most diplomatic thing. So I'm much more optimistic out of this. And, you know, thanks to people like, like, like Dr. Horton, we're getting his students and, and the younger people are going to push the older people like us to have to do what, what is necessary to save the planet. Yeah. So I think we're... We're on the right. We're on the right track. Uh, Steve Oaken, Ben Horton. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks to both of you for being on today. We'll hope to have you on again soon. Thank you. Thanks, guys. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.